You're listening to a Views and Brews recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. Find out how you can join us for a live show at the Cactus at cactuscafe.org. Thanks for coming out. Usually I start with a poem, but I couldn't find a really good poem around Tippy. So um, Tom is going to start us out with a little bit of the introduction for The Secret Ingredient and also maybe a history of tipping in the United States. So I'd like to first introduce my co-host, Tom Philpot from Mother Jones Magazine. Thank you very much, Rebecca. And shall I introduce the panel as well? Yeah, okay. go ahead and do that. So from Thai Fresh, please... How many people have been to Thai Fresh? Quick disclaimer, it's my favorite restaurant. We have Jam, fantastic restaurateur. Welcome. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. Thank you. Also, from Black Star Brewery, brewery and Co-op. Is that, how, is that how you say it? Or Co-op and Black Brewery? Black Star Co-op, Pub and Brewery. Co-op, Pub and Brewery. Close enough. <laughs> Jody Mazika, thank you so much for being here tonight. And from Locadoro, we have Adam Orman. Thank you for coming, and it's wonderful to have you along with us tonight. So thank you. And now I will finally turn it over to you, Tom. Okay, thank you, Rebecca, and thanks everyone for being here. Um, I can't imitate my co-host Raj, uh, who's, as Rebecca said, is in England promoting his book, Um, but I'll try to get the secret ingredient anyway. Um, The secret ingredient for today's show is fair wages in the restaurant industry. And too often, I think we can say that not only is it the secret ingredient of this show, but it's a missing ingredient. Um, If you look at aggregate numbers, if you look at um, the numbers, uh, the the data around uh, wages in the restaurant industry, it's a pretty dismal story. it's, first of all, we should say it's a huge source of employment. Nearly 10% of U.S. workers are engaged in food services. It's a huge, uh, huge industry. Um, the restaurant's wages have, been, uh, have stagnated for years and years, and they've stagnated at very low levels. Um, unionization is almost non-existent. Um, and as a result of these factors of uh, wage stagnation, of, um, of lack of unionization, um, about, uh, let's see here, about uh, um, 16.7% of families who are engaged in the industry, whose main breadwinners work in the industry, live on, on, uh, on wages that are about twice the poverty wage, which is a really, really low uh, wage. And as a result, the industry, uh, a lot of people in the industry um, tend to be uh, receiving public assistance of various kinds, food stamps and things like that. Um, and uh, w- one of the, the, the things that drives the industry, and I should say that these numbers that I'm giving are for the whole industry. They encompass um, local restaurants, but also um, the entities that dominate the industry, the, your sort of big chains, your, your Applebee's, your fast food restaurants, these restaurants that really kind of uh, are the, the dominant providers in this industry. Um, and uh, in terms of tips, in terms of the, um, the way that the tipping uh, situation works in the United States, that most states, and, and Texas is included in this, have a non-tipped, or a tipped minimum wage. 
And that is to say that if you're a tipped employee, you make much less than the national minimum wage. And the minimum wage for tipped workers is $2.13, which if you're working in a sort of white tablecloth, busy restaurant, you're probably making a, a pretty good wage. But if you're working in a, um, in a chain, you're, it's very, very unstable. Uh, oftentimes, those workers don't make a minimum wage. And so, um, you know, so life is very difficult for these workers, and there is this new emerging trend that is, that is going on of restaurateurs who are experimenting with figuring out how to make every worker in the restaurant get a decent wage. And one of the things that all three of the, the businesses that are represented on stage here have done is that they've eliminated tipping and, um, and don't have, don't rely on a non-tip minimum wage and are trying to do things that ensure that everyone makes a fair wage. And so, Rebecca, do you want to add a few things about the sort of, the, the history of tipping? I mean, it's basically a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in the United States. Yeah, when we interviewed Saru Jayaraman from Rock, who, you probably know Rock, the Restaurant Organization Coalition, isn't that right? Restaurant Opportunities Coalition. Re Restaurant Opportunities Coalition. She um, had a lot to say about the history of tipping. So it came over from feudal Europe to the United States. And it was this idea that, you know, in the United States we wanted to be more classy, like Europeans, so we're going to adopt this idea of tipping. And what happened with a lot of populist movements in the 1800s was that that was wiped out. Like, people thought, you know, tipping isn't, the big, isn't a really good thing to do, so they kind of wiped it out. However, after slavery restaurant owners hired slaves and didn't pay them and said that they could rely on tips to make a wage. So that is kind of how tipping started in the United States. And in Europe, tipping isn't as big as it is here. And I've um, worked in a lot of restaurants in Europe myself, and I've always been able to make a living wage. And people tip like maybe 5 10%. But I made more there substantially than I have ever made in the United States working in the restaurant industry. So it is a lot different. Um, being a restaurant worker in Europe versus being a restaurant worker in the United States. And as a woman, specifically, it's a different experience being a restaurant worker where you're not reliant upon a tipped wage to make a living. It changes the dynamic of the interaction. Women um, you know, have a lot more agency when they can say that they won't wait on a table if somebody grabs them, for example. In the United States, that's that's, they don't have that much agency to do that. So it was really interesting, something that Saru pointed out with the last election, you had states like Arizona, on the same ballot they were voting for Trump, they were also, in vote, they were also voting to increase the minimum wage for tip workers. So it's a really interesting dynamic that this is a subject that we could come together on because there are so many different elements of... Um, a social justice that are a part of the idea of increasing the minimum wage for service workers. So with that said, I guess we should start off by asking these wonderful restaurateurs what the decision process was like in creating a space where their workers were not relying on tips and they did increase the minimum wage for their wait staff. What was, what was that like, Jim, for you? What was that decision like? Well, it... Um took a while, so I just got inspired first by visiting Black Star Co-op 
and then learn about their tipping system. And I was like, wow, this is interesting because I'm from Thailand, so we don't do tipping as much in Thailand either. So everybody's paid um, a livable wage and then just some tips, like 5% or sometimes less. Uh, and, and then kept reading about it. And so I was a restaurant for already seven years before I, I switched over. And I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. So I did research, talked to people, read some stories, and did a spreadsheet of uh, the possibilities, scenarios. So this is what it is now today. This is how much money I make. This is how much money I pay. So in a different scenario, if I'm going to switch to no tipping, then I'm going to increase the price of the menu items, and then I'm going to increase the wages, and then see if it's going to work with the income that I have. And I, with that, I also put in, I'm also going to offer you know, paid day offs and paid sick leave and bonuses and stuff. So I just kind of put that onto that as well. And it took me a year and a half to finally jump into it. I was like, I think this works. Uh, I think I do have consistent income. And I'll take some of this income and to buffer if it's not working out, I think it will be fine. And, and so I did that two years ago on Martin Luther King's day, uh, two years ago. On today? Uh, Martin, on Martin, Martin Luther King's day, yeah. Like two years no. ago today, well look at that. that is, <laughs> how perfect is that? So it's Martin Luther King's day. Um, uh, that was, was the first day we started. And the restaurant was packed, people were surprised, like not sure what's going on. And we switched from counter service to table service as well, all at once, we switched everything. People just wondering what we're doing and and I would not go back. I think it's it's been working for us. I think um, retention of the kitchen staff and the front of the house staff is so much better. Um, I always say like they don't leave anymore. They just stick around for much longer. And the stress, the tension, like there's no, the stress level especially, it's just kind of, I just feel like so much easier. People are in a better state of mind. They're not stressed before they come to work. And throughout the work for four or five, six hours shift that they're so stressed. Am I gonna make enough money? Oh, that table didn't tip me, so it's gonna bring me down. It will take me a little bit to get back up in order to serve another table, right? So and with the host, why don't you seat me? With the kitchen, you make more money than me. I do, it's just kind of a lot of tension. So I think that kind of, Eliminate that as well. Yeah. How did how did your clientele react to the change? Because um, you've been in, you've been in business for how long? It'll be ten years in August. Right. So you had a, a, it's hard a, to say a long track record, an established set <laughs> yeah. of fans, loved your restaurant. Do, so how yeah. did they how did they respond to the? I think the positive. Uh, most of them. I, I only you know only a few approach and say I don't think this is right. I want the power of being able to take that away. If I'm not happy. Um, so I, I do get that comment, but I get much more or many more comments that they are really happy. And uh, believe it or not, I did increase the price of the food by you know, roughly from 18 to 25 percent, some 30, depending on what it is and how much it was originally. And actually, people did not notice most of them. Like you said, you yeah, said you didn't I, notice. Yeah, it's I, just been going. Yeah, lo- America's been the going time. for a while. <laughs> so people, yeah, I think people were, like, we put a sign up on the table explaining what we're doing. There's no tip line on the credit card. 
and it would stay on there. Thank you for your you know, like support and for supporting fair wages. And they could leave cash tips. They have to really go out of their way. They have to bring cash. So some people have learned, she's just like, I, I really want a tip. So it's gonna leave a few dollars on the table. But, but positive, I would say, I, like most of it, just like very, very few kind of not happy about it. And they stopped coming. And, but, and yeah. you mentioned like you learned uh, this or kind of thought about this from, from Blackstar. So Jody, talk a little bit about the decision of Blackstar to do this. Because your business model is actually a lot different than a lot of other breweries. Yes, as a cooperative, we're um, member-owned. So basically, we're owned by their community. We have a membership base of over 3,500 people that have invested into the co-op, which is awesome. And we have a certain set of ends policies, which are basically values decided by our membership that they would like us to continue pursuing as part of our business model. Um, and kind of interesting, like Jam said, like people don't even notice. Our membership has repeatedly said that they would rather spend more on the food, like have us increase that rather than like switching to a tipping model or, or something similar to that. Like that it's such, it's on such a high priority to pay fair wages to our employees. Um, it's just, it's not something that we're willing to sacrifice at all. And how long have you been with the company? I'm not a founder, um, so I wasn't there when um, there was a group of people that were into drinking in backyards that were setting up a cooperative-run brewery, unfortunately. Uh, I've been there for five years, though, now. Yeah. But um, as a woman, is it interesting for you to be part of this business model in the service industry and maybe talk to other women who are part of the service industry about this model and why it's important? Yeah, I think that um, we had a really good group of um, female leadership when I had first started there. I started on the pub team um, five years ago and eventually moved up to business team and then to business team leader. And I think that what's interesting about our model in particular is that, number one, you, you, you have this base wage, so you know what you're going and working for, and you know what you're worth, and, and you know, like you want to keep pursuing more opportunities that come along. So when some position opens up, like that opportunity is there for me within the co-op. So I had this, these couple of like really awesome female leaders, uh, Dana Curtis and Nicole Renault, who like just were awesome in teaching me things that I didn't really know anything about at the time. You know, I'm from New Jersey. I didn't know what a co-op was. I didn't know anything. (laughs) And they were like, hey, like, this is really important to us. These are like, we have a lot of values at this place, and there's a lot that you can learn. And I kind of tried and took every opportunity that I can to move up. And I I think that if if it was a place where we were taking tips, you wouldn't have that, like, leadership managerial aspect to it where you you just you want to continue working there because you feel like you're being treated fairly yeah exactly tom did you want to ask a question okay i'll ask adam a question (laughs) so adam you know what what was your decision going into this because you started locadora just is it two years ago yeah it'll be two years uh uh two years next month um and this is the first restaurant that my partner and I have owned uh, here, and I worked in California for six years managing, and we, I was there in 2003 when they, uh, when they voted to, San Francisco, unlike Austin, still has control over a lot of its city policies. Um, which is a which is a, a, a miraculous thing. Uh, so you can uh, so they voted to raise the minimum wage, 
and there was a big fight about whether or not the tipped minimum wage was going to go along with that. Um, one of the crazy things about the $2.13 uh, wage is that it obviously is not the same across the country. And um, in California, uh, they eliminated it in 1971. Um, for 46, and, and as all of you know, uh, the restaurant industry has cratered in California and nobody goes there anymore and nobody opens restaurants. And uh, yeah, and it's just fires and mudslides. Um, so we have this amazing model, um, one of the most vibrant, exciting restaurant scenes in America uh, that has been doing this for almost 50 years. And, uh, and there's still, and there's still uh, 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 resistance. Um, and it's not just independent restaurants in California, it's chains. And chains open restaurants there with, uh, uh, in large amounts and are still successful um, and still want to have a presence there. So when they did that and uh, the city won and tip minimum wage was uh, going to be tethered with, to, the federal, to the state minimum wage forever, it went up to nine, I think it's now 12 or 13. Um, there were a lot of creative ways to try and solve how to deal with that. And um, so when we, when my partner and I, uh, the, the executive chef Fiori, um, decided to open this, decided to open Locadoro, uh, we knew that we were going to pay everybody at least $8 an hour in the front of the house um, and guarantee at least a living wage, which in Austin is $13.50 an hour for the back of the house. Um, that is supposedly a living wage. Um, and... And uh, um, building in overtime, and then being able to also share tips. So it was a very, it was a really like kind of Byzantine structure because two years ago the laws were very different than they are now. Even in the last two years, things have changed. Even in the last two months, things have changed. Um, so we we knew we wanted to do it for ethical reasons, um, and because of some of the things that I'd seen in San Francisco, we knew we also wanted to do it for financial reasons. Uh, as a business owner. Um, in a business with very, with very slim margins, to know that 20% of your revenue is walking out the door every night is, um, is silly. And, and that's sort of what I try and tell restaurant owners who are afraid of switching to a different model. This isn't about eliminating tipping. It's about sharing the money in a different way that will benefit, we always talk about equity that will benefit the back of the house, the front of the house, and ownership um, in more fair ways. Um, so it's been a learning curve, for sure, here, figuring out um, what model made the most sense for us. I think every restaurant needs to be a little bit different. Um, and the folks at that restaurant opportunity at Rock will tell you and will counsel and let you know that this is not, there is not a one-size-fits-all. Um, so what we've ended up doing is uh, currently we have a service charge that's attached to every check. Um, it is heavily messaged on all of our menus, on the receipts, on the website, um, obnoxiously so. Uh, and it wasn't something that we wanted to do. Nobody wants to talk about this. They want to eat spaghetti. Um, so, uh, but they do want to complain about it. Uh, so we try and head that off. Um, we try and make sure that that employees know why we do it. Uh, we try and make sure 
what's been much easier in our second year than in our first year is making sure that we have employees who want to be there uh, because of this and not just um, who want to be there because of this, who, who, are, who are on board. Um, a couple of them are here, uh, so, they so they must want to be a part of this. Um, and know that they know how to message it as well, um, and they can still accept tips. But then that service charge is spread out uh, to the entire restaurant. Um, by next year, we will move to a model where uh, the service charge is, where the, the hospitality is built into the price and um, employees will share, will get a percentage of sales, um, which I think will help to bring up the, the one thing that, we, that we're still working on is, try to, is trying to figure out how to bring up the back of the house. So um, it's, it's complicated. You know, one question I have for you guys. So when I was in high school, I worked in restaurants here in Austin, and I worked at a famous um, institution called Nighthawk Steakhouse. Uh, for many years, I was a, I was a but, started off as a busboy, and I worked my way up to cook. And I remember um, at the age of 16 or 17, uh, I was a line cook, grill, working the, the grill station, and I made the print, what was then the princely wage of six twenty five an hour, which I think was um, quite a bit more than minimum wage at the time. I think the minimum wage was like three seventy five or four twenty five, and we felt like. Pretty, pretty good about ourselves. But there was already at that time, there was a front of the house versus back of the house split. And the way that it worked was that the waitresses, um, most of the, the wait staff were women, um, would do great on busy nights. And then they would sort of, you know, um, carry the bag on slow nights. They would, they would be making their two thirteen an hour um, and their, their wages would go um, down quite a bit on slow nights. Um, and so um, the place was often busy. Uh, there were, you know, when, when the football game was in town, uh, UT, there would be, you know, massive, massive sales. And, um, and so there was, we definitely, we cooks definitely had the idea that the front of the house was making a lot more money than us. Um, and the way that it would sort of work out on the wash was that the waitresses would often buy our drinks after work. Um, back in that time in Austin, you could go have a drink at 16 or 17. No one really looked at IDs. Um, but to me, it bespoke of this um, front of the house versus back of the house split. And, um, and I think in, in sort of your, um, you know, uh, cash, you know, your sort of nicer restaurants, um, being a waiter, being on the wait staff can be a bit of a franchise. You can, you can make a decent amount of money and I'm wondering how your front-of-the-house workers have reacted to this change of the sort of making the, the wage structure more equitable. I mean, it's sort of a two-way street um, because it seems like the front-of-the-house has predictable wages in this scenario, but maybe less wages than back in the old days when you could, you know, really clean up on selling that $50 bottle of wine or whatever and get 20% of it. So how, how have your workers dealt with this, um, this, this new system? I mean, the goal for us is now to make sure that it is to create a little more equity there. The front of the, in terms of front of the house buy-in, it's, 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 it's finding the right people and creating the right culture um, and telling folks in interviews you can literally go find. You can literally go work anywhere else in Austin and not have to deal with my 
with my bullshit. Um, and, and, and that's okay. You know, I don't, you don't want to be here. I don't want you to be here. Um, but if you are okay with knowing that you're going to make six times more hourly than everybody else in Austin, than every other server, and you're going to have a much higher ceiling, a much higher floor, I'm sorry, then, uh, then this is a good place for you. Um, if you want to have a much more friendly relationship with the cooks who you work with, then this is going to be a good place for you. The one quick thing, I mean, and this, this gets into the issue of sexual harassment as well, and um, the tipping is not just about, about customers and female employees. It's also uh, about female employees and kitchen and management. Um, is when there's tips involved, you get to lord over what tables somebody's going to get, what sections, what shifts, how quickly their food is going to come out. Um, and there are horror stories about, of, of female employees having to do things to get their food out of their kitchens, uh, which they know they need because they're not going to get tipped otherwise. Um, so, you know, uh, knowing that this is our structure means that we are going to also be hiring and creating a culture uh, of, of staff that, that, that want to work in, in that environment. Yeah, I could second that. Um, definitely understand all of those sentiments that Adam just made. Um, we... At Blackstar, we have four different teams. We have not just a front and back of house, but we also have a kitchen team and a business team, and we're paid equitable, equitably across the board. So everyone that comes into Blackstar starts at the same rate and has the same opportunities, but we're looking for managerial you know, influence in them. We're looking for people that want to stay there and want to work and want to take on new opportunities, and that's how you can kind of you know, encourage people to... to stay on with us to like are you going to be able to do this because we're we're all on the same page this is like an even playing field here and it's it cre it creates like a really good family environment because you don't have that you know um distance between front and back of house you don't even have that between the management and like we have it we call them team leaders but you don't even have it between team leaders and and your front of house workers because we're all like we're we're all there with the same opportunity which is interesting and just, I just think it creates a really good, healthy work environment. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think um, people who've come, because we went from counter service to table service, so we had to hire a lot of people. Uh, so, in the, so some left, not sure if they were gonna make enough money, so they left, and then half of them stay, and we hired the rest, but the thing is, all of the people that have applied or come to work for us come because that's what we do, because they don't have to get tipped to actually make a living. So they come because they knew about our system. It's like, because the first thing in the interview was like, do you know about our tipping system or our fair wage system? And she's like, that's why I'm here. I just want to work for a company that does that. I have been in restaurants that um, I don't know what I'm going to make. I could walk away with $10 after I get cut in the morning and end up not making anything. It's really hard to balance, to you know, keep books of yourself. Just like you don't know what you're going to make and then you end up spending a lot of money on the day you make a lot and then you just kind of get... And so I think we also attract different people 
uh, people that uh, want consistency, people that want to plan their life, they want to know what they're getting at the end of the, you know, two weeks uh, for their paycheck. So, Mark, and and I think that people just stay longer because that's what the thing in life is. It's like if I work here, if I work hard, I become a trainer, then I'll get a raise, and then I'll come management, and I will be more. So there's a, the ladder that they could climb up, and they they understand, and they know that they will be paid accordingly. So. It's funny that yeah. you mentioned the ladder. I mean, you both mentioned the ladder, and, and, and it's a funny thing in our industry. Typically, the ladder goes the wrong way. That you, if you want to professionalize your job and go from being a server to a manager, you take a pay cut, uh, like a massive pay cut. Um, and I feel like part of this is also reversing that, is, is trying to get servers to, is trying to get people in who are going to be able to make more as they take on more responsibility, not the other way around. You know, there's another element to it also, which is um, allowing people to plan for their lives. You know, a lot of times in the service industry, it's very difficult to plan. It's very difficult. You have to go to work if you're sick, because if you don't go to work, you're not going to make money that day if you're relying on tipped wages. Um, What are some of the other things that you have implemented in, to make it easier for people, like pay, paid sick leave, um, vacation time, what are these other things that are part of the equity project, if it were? Health insurance, maternity leave, paternity leave, things like that. Um, you know, I've uh, had many meetings with Adam already for the, like, advocating for the paid sick ordinance, which is awesome that that passed. Um, yeah, but it, but it is, it's like, it's, it's so much more than just paying fair wages. It's also offering people an opportunity to be able to live like a healthy person and have like a healthy lifestyle because you're offering them what, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say because every restaurant is going to offer different things. Every business is going to offer different things to their employees. But you know, we just, we want a healthy work environment. And I think that your patronage recognizes that so much. Like Adam was saying, we write it all across the board that, that we don't do this, like this is how we do this. And we also really try to like push that message across that you guys are here, you're you're not just eating food here, you're helping sustain our employees and sustain and sustain our restaurant through a healthy work environment, which is, it's, it's just really cool, that's it. And that messaging is so important. You know, like, Jam, you mentioned that you used to have eliminate, that you eliminated tipped wages uh, on the little cards, but now you talk about equity. Um, and then also changing the messaging around the service charge. How do you think, or how have you been working with other restaurants, other restaurateurs, in order to advocate for fair wages? And what messaging do you use when you talk to other restaurants? I think that's just starting. Um, I mean, we, we certainly are in a place that after two years, in the first two years, it was really hard to think about reaching out. And even when we did, I think a lot of folks were, even, a, lot of our, of a lot of our restaurateur friends sort of wanted to see, needed to wait and see what was going to happen. We'll see what you do. Yeah. We'll yeah. see what you do Are first. you going to be around in two years? <laughs> um, well, we, it is, it's, it's one year and 11 months. So I, thi- <laughs> I think we're good for another month. Um, and that is just starting to happen. I mean, I think it is definitely, uh, uh, thanks to the city council and the workers' defense project for bringing a bunch of businesses together for the paid sick leave ordinate, uh, uh, battle. Um, a number of businesses 
we've sort of extended that and are moving forward to try and talk in our individual industries and also as a group about what a, a, a progressive business association might look like and what the criteria might be and what incentives um, the city might be able to provide. And those are things that I've been talking about individually with city and state legislators for two years now. Um, but now there seems to be, now there's a little bit more weight and, and, and some more folks having the conversation. The conversation happens nationally at the, with, with the Rock Summit. Um, uh, there are a lot of restaurants in Detroit and Chicago, New York, the Bay Area, who are experimenting with a lot of different methods and, um, and you get to hear their plans. But um, uh, there aren't as many, there aren't as many, there aren't as many blue city, red state uh, restaurants that are, that are experimenting, so. And you know, uh, I just really quickly, we, we've mentioned Rock a few times, but Tom, do you know how Rock was developed? Do you remember the story that Sarah Yeah, said? I do. It was um, developed did? after 9-11 um, by workers who survived, who worked in the World Trade Center restaurant, uh, Windows in the World, who, who survived that, and many of them immigrants, um, very, very low-wage workers, and it was just sort of organizing around those issues after 9-11. Um, what about you guys? You know, th this mythology around um, tipping as just the normalcy of it uh, is, is really something that you're also fighting against with the messaging. How have you had inroads into that intervention? Say that again. So <laughs> I lost you. I was like, wait. How do you what How do you feel about fighting with customers? No, no like, fighting with or, or mainly like, you know, what are some really positive interactions you've had around messaging? Things that really like speak to people's uh, best interests. Thank you. <laughs> well, as I mentioned before, there were very few uh, resistance. I feel that's what I. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing, and. Uh, if you give me a chance, I won't go back to where it was because uh, the the feedback was so positive. So people would just feel like this is the way to do it and they appreciate what we're doing. So as far so the feedback has been great, the comments has been great, and I have, I just feel like it's just been such a positive experience and it's not, yeah. I think it's interesting, like who comes in and who has what reaction? Because for the most part, it's a really positive reaction. Like, no tipping on this beer? Oh my God, this is amazing. I love this model. I love that I'm like paying for people to, you know, have a healthy family life and, and have a fair wage. And this is all about community. But I remember when I first started going to Blackstar, coming out of being a service industry worker, I was like, no, I'm leaving you money and I don't really care. And I would throw money on the table and run out and drink my beer outside. And like now, you know, <laughs> That was before I started working there, and now I'm like, no, this is really actually better. And seeing people just kind of get so stoked about, you know, I just drank four beers, and I didn't tip once on it, and I'm feeling pretty good right now. <laughs> and I know that all the workers are feeling pretty good right now, so it's just, it, for the most part, it's a really healthy reaction from, from folks. I've been that worker, that, that person before in the bar who's had four beers. <laughs> My, my favorite thing about Black Star is that you can just walk out on your tab. <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, you but, pay it, but yes, you can walk yeah. out. What, what, one question I have for you guys is on the business end. So 
obviously Austin is a hyper competitive restaurant market. New restaurants are opening all the time. There's always a hot new restaurant that's being flocked to and getting publicity. Um, and I'm wondering, do you guys feel like this model, which causes, you know, it basically causes you to put the price of fair wages in the price that customers pay. Instead of putting on the customer, hey, you got to take 20%, the price is the sort of illusion. The price you're seeing in the menu is an illusion. You're putting the price in the menu. Um, two questions. Does that, do you feel like that puts you at a disadvantage in this competitive market? Or, or it could be and or, is it also a marketing tool? Because someone like me frequents your restaurants because you do what you do, and so it's good marketing. But then there's other people who just want to eat spaghetti, right? Um, and so how does that all wash out? Is this an advantage? Is it more difficult? What do you think? We changed significantly last summer and decided to start wearing more of this stuff out front. Um, the All the the... the good guy branding stuff um, where we source um, not just you know uh, 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 we we buy locally when possible but but being much more aggressive about letting folks know and having our servers talk about it um, about talking about, about how the the wage uh, uh, wages were were being branded and really turned it into had felt like we had to turn it into who we are in a much more outward way um, to make it a positive because it it wasn't I mean I think that uh, the first the first year was a um, was more of a struggle with our staff and with customers um, our price point is a little bit higher um, than uh, than 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 you guys a little bit and um, and so and I don't think we were doing a great job so it was a bit of a surprise for it was more of it was a surprise more than I wanted it to be for some customers, and uh, I was having that conversation more often than I wanted to. So there was a pretty big change last summer, and since then, um, since it became a we belong to Mealshare and and donate to the food bank and we we write articles and we are out front unpaid sick leave and we're sitting at the Cactus Cafe talking about tips. <laughs> like, it, uh, you know, we're the, we're, the, we're the political spaghetti place. Um, and I, I don't think you can do this otherwise. Um, I do think that messaging is really difficult. It's really difficult because if you walk into a restaurant and you look at a menu, you're looking at what items they have and you're looking at their prices. Are you noticing anything else? Like, even if you have blasted all over, like, you know, this includes a service charge, this includes this people don't, there's still like an element of sticker shock regardless. And I think that our prices are fair. I think that Locadora's prices are fair for what you're getting, but it doesn't always translate to people that are just walking into a restaurant for the first time, not really knowing what their model is, not really knowing what their ethics are, not really knowing what their values are, and just kind of being like, well, I'm not really going to take the time to look more into this. I see this number and I'm going to leave. So it, it is, messaging is really difficult to get across. I think. Yeah, I think that's why we put it on the table as well. We don't. We have a very small table, but they don't read it on the menu. If we put it on the menu, they just read the prices and 
So it's like, okay, real estate is very limited here, but we make a point of putting it on the table. You know, it's on our first page of the website. That's what we're doing. And we've been doing farm to table for a long time. So our price thing is we probably one of the very few Asian restaurants. So it was very hard in the beginning already before the tipping elimination and having to add 20% more. Um, but to tell you, I don't feel like it was this advantage though. I think it's just because people eventually will understand what you do and a lot of them have said that's why they come. And then eventually the message will get across. You might turn some people away for once or twice, or they might ever, they may not ever come back. Some people leave us a review without even eating. It's like, we went in there, it's so expensive, terrible, one star. I was like, okay, <laughs> well, that's cool, all right. And then, but we still have a lot of people that also come to us personally and, and appreciate what we're doing. People who have been there for the past almost 10 years, they're still coming day after day after day. Every time we change something, they feel like it's a positive thing that we do, so. Well, I think we should um, open it up for questions. We have a few more minutes. And Amy, I didn't even ask you if you would be able to do the mic. Is, would you be able to do the mic? Is she back there still? We might not have a mic. <laughs> Can I say something while uh, I'm fixing the mic? Yeah, go ahead. I, I, it's interesting, I mean, talking about marketing and branding with, with you two, because uh, the problem with the national, with, with the the folks on the other side of the restaurant aisle. Um, I mean, National Restaurant Association restaurants are, are funneling a ton of money into political projects as well. Um, and they don't spend, they spend so much time and energy hiding where their food comes from and where their money goes so that um, you don't know that you've just contributed to a, 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 to a, a a candidate who you would never vote for. Um, and on our side, we have to spend so much energy uh, doing the opposite and, and letting folks know that there are different restaurant models and that there are restaurants that, 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 that the choice that you make when you go to a restaurant is a political choice. Um, you know, it's not what you want to talk about. Yeah. I know. I think that's a really important point, actually, is that a lot of people, and especially in Austin, you know, having the, <clears throat> the tags on the table like you do at Thai Fresh, it's been a point of people that they really want to talk about this. They really want to talk about, you know, um, fair wages, where their food comes from, are the farm workers treated fairly, uh, what are the working conditions like for people, what is the back of the house like, and all of those things are coming up in conversations daily, and I do feel like you're right, it is a political decision. Not only where you eat, but also where you buy your food from, what type of food you buy, and, and trying to be informed about that is an active thing. And I think, you know, from, from my perspective, having done The Secret Ingredient for a while, and Tom has written so ridiculously extensively on all of this, um, I am really always amazed at how much people don't know but want to know about the food system. And, and so I think that what you're doing is allowing people to just talk about it and to be more informed about it and to be more curious about it also. Can I just stick in a quick question before the audience? And that is, um, so the city council a couple months ago passed paid sick leave over the objections of the local NRA and the national NRA. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk us through um, what that means for your businesses 
and also what um, the industry is pushing back and suing, or is that is is that is that where it is now? Is it in a state of flux? Yeah, we're we're um, interveners on the in the um, lawsuit, um, which we hope will will go away. Um, there, this the suit is. Uh, Based on the fact on, on wage law and that, that it's again it it is opposed to the Texas Constitution because the wage law that they passed only requires um, a certain that only requires that businesses pay the federal minimum wage and that cities can't adjust that and that if you require somebody to be paid for hours when they weren't there that that violates the state's wage law and that cities can't violate a state law is unconstitutional. Um, Texas Civil Rights Project thinks this is silly. Um, it sounds silly the way I describe it. Um, so I, I think that the that it will go away and our hope is that other cities will adopt this quickly enough uh, in the next eight months uh, before the legislative session starts and that it will be harder for them to then overturn it because there'll have been, you know, 10 or 12 cities across the state that have already adopted paid sick days. And this is uh, part of the struggle of running a sort of um, fair wage restaurant in a hard red state, right? Because basically the, the state ensures, so the city of Austin could not change the tip wage, that they'd sort of, uh, uh, yeah, the, the tip minimum wage. The, the city of Austin could not do that. That's not part of the policy apparatus like they did in San Francisco. Now the whole California has done it after San Francisco tried it, but um, but you couldn't. Austin couldn't do that. So this is like the one thing that Austin can do, and it's of course it's being challenged by some people with very very deep pockets in court. Yeah, and and the um, and the restaurant associations are run by. Um, you know, by and large, independently owned restaurants aren't members of the restaurant associations. Um, the bulk of the money for the National Restaurant Association comes from Yum and Darden um, and Restaurant Associates, and and they're you know they're they're contributing millions and millions and millions of dollars. So um, it ha there was a there was a, a a Republican pulse that was leaked. Uh, a couple of weeks ago that The Intercept released. And um, did I say that right? Yeah, the inter the, this is the writer for The Intercept. Um, and uh, it showed that 70% of Americans uh, uh, support an increased minimum wage, even if it means that prices will go up. And they did the poll and they buried it, um, but there it is. So let's, uh, let's open things up for questions. And Amy is very generous to come around with the mic. Thank you. Hello. Oh, first of all, thank you guys for talking to us. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess, so you mentioned, or we were just discussing the difficulties of, uh, I guess, implementing this in a blue city in a deeply red state. Um, what would you guys say, I mean, and it seems like it's very tied to pol uh, politics, correct? So how would you recommend trying to bring something like this to uh, a red, you know, a red city in a red state or a red city in a blue state? How, I mean, how could we divorce this from 
politics and really bring this to a human level, I guess? I think that during the stakeholder process, uh, as we were going through the paid sick campaign, there were a lot of other restaurants that were contentious and just hesitant toward passing this whole thing. And it's a, it's a weird thing to say, right, as a business owner, you don't want to say, I don't want to pay my employees paid sick. You don't want to come out publicly and say stuff like that. But what it did was like open up this much larger conversation about, well, what would it mean if I did that? What, like, what would the bottom line look like? Is this really going to hurt my business is, or is this going to help me retain more employees? Is this going to help with turnover? Is this going to help create a healthier work environment? So I think that just even just like kind of like spitting out a little sprinkle of like, well, this is like uh, paid sick was a really good first step, you know, because you're not you're, you're not saying, OK, now everybody's got to pay all their employees $15 an hour. It's just no, you have to give them like eight paid sick days that they might not take. And they might not get, you know, so I think small stepping stones like that are a really good introduction to people that just, they're concerned about their business, you know, like they, they understand that there's really thin margins in restaurants and everything is a little bit more difficult when it comes to treating your workers fairly, but there are ways to make that happen. And we're kind of like really good examples, sorry not to toot our own horns, but of making that work. And it's really interesting, the stuff that um, Saru has, has talked about a lot um, that happened in Arizona around how they were trying to organize for an increased minimum wage. It's really about you know f workers' rights, it's about family values, and all of those things also go into the discussion. So I think check out our secret ingredient that we did with Saru on tips, and you might find some tips in that show. Also. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it is, it is about customers and owners, uh, customers and, and operators, uh, much more than it's about, uh, much more than it's about politicians. Um, I mean, that's what I was trying to make up, but the point about, about who is running the trade associations is people who are divorced from our daily interactions with our people. Um, so, you know, you, you, you still run your business the way you want to, and then you just hope that you can get other people, uh, 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 create a little group of friends, um, and, and trade some, you know, trade some secrets uh, about how to make it work, and, and um, then it's not political. Yeah, and I think there's a good reason that the NRA repressed that poll, right? Because that shows if 70% of people broadly in the United States support a raising the minimum wage for tip workers, that is way higher than the number of people that vote Democratic or whatever. That, that means that most people, Democrat or Republican, feel like the people that serve them their food should be getting a, a, a living wage. And so just sort of... Uh, Getting that message out there in those states, um, letting people know what the stakes are, and letting people know also that the horror stories that the industry brings up, like, if you do this, your favorite restaurant's going to fail, um, just aren't true. And we've got the examples up here right now. Um, what that opposition is about is um, enormous corporations protecting profit margins to maximize uh, returns to shareholders. It's not about... Um, community restaurants and what what communities need to to get by. Another question. So sorry, I'm I'm uh, an engineer, so I'm trying to figure out what's the 
mathematics? How, uh, clearly there's advantages for eliminating uncertainty in wages and boosting the pay for the back of the house. So that's the labor side. Where is this money coming from? So is it charitable? Uh, give, you know, so is it coming from the people buying the food or is it coming from your wages? I'm sure the experience isn't the same between your businesses. Where are you seeing, there's no magical bucket for the money, right? So there must be some kind of trade for getting rid of that uncertainty. Are they getting lower average wages or are you guys taking a hit or is it the customers? I am. So just, um, just because I, well, they started off no tip, right? From the day they opened, we switched from tip restaurant to no tip restaurant. So, and as I mentioned, we do spreadsheet and we just know that this is not gonna be possible without giving out our profit. But because our margin was pretty good, <laughs> I'm not sure if I should say that, but it was good enough that I feel that I could uh, sacrifice, which is probably not the right word, I feel like I could share more and it will be possible. So part, part of it come from increasing the prices on the menu, as I mentioned earlier, 20% uh, roughly, but also cutting the profit um, that we were making. And in the long run, I feel like I'm able to keep uh, employees longer, retention is higher in the long run. I'm also saving that money so it comes back. And looking at the bank account the past two years, it's been really good and I'm able to also spending that money that coming from customer and coming partly from our profit to offer you know, paid vacation and started paid sick leave January this year and also offer health insurance. As soon as we switched, we were able to offer health insurance um, to employees. So it coming from, yeah, from us and from, uh, from you that you, yeah, thank you. And you usually tip, but you don't have to anymore, but the price is, in there, the price includes our hospitality. It's just like we mentioned before. It, it, this is what it costs me to provide this food to you and also make sure that my employees able to make a living without having to work 80 hours a week because most of them used to. And some of them don't anymore. They're just like, I'm happy, I'm gonna be here, I'm just gonna work 40 and I'm gonna go home and see my kids. So that's, uh, that's a very happy, yeah. I, to try and answer quickly, I mean, it's a little bit of a shell game. Um, we will increase prices, and everything that we increase will go to our will go to staff next year. So whatever the, the so the percentage that we were doing for so our labor cost this year um, will be up about ten percent. We're 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 anticipate. I mean, that my what my my goal next year will be that it'll be about ten percent higher. Um, which if I just told another restaurateur I'm running. X labor cost, they would laugh at me, and I'd say no. But we raise. It makes sense. <laughs> trust, trust me, um, because the, I mean, we'll you know we're just it's just a totally different model than than the than the usual calculation, um, and then you wiggle around uh, hours. Typically, back of house makes a really low hourly, uh, and then you build in overtime. You, you assume that they're going to work this amount of overtime, and now next year. Or, 
you know, next year we will be salarying all of them and then giving them a percentage of sales um, so that we don't have to worry about how many hours. So we'll be able to have fewer employees working more because um, generally speaking, back of house, they would rather work more and make more. They don't want their bosses telling them like, no, you can't. I mean, there's so many restaurants that cooks are coming in typically hour, two hours early and not being allowed to clock in until they're in time because they know they have too much work and they know that they can't get their work done in that amount of time. So they're coming in two hours early so that they don't lose their jobs, but they're not allowed to clock in until one o'clock and then they're getting paid, you know, their, their poverty wages for that shift. And then they're getting cut off at exactly 40 hours because they can't be paid overtime. Um, if we can salary, if we can salary those folks and have them work 55 hours, I mean, still enormous. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we're going to be starting like sweatshops. Um, although, eh. um, uh, there, that's that's the fun part. I think is trying to figure out. Um, great, we know these people want to work 55 hours. We know these people want to work five full days here. Um, what do we do? How can we, how, can we, how can we move the money around? Another question? Uh, <laughs> Jody, did you have anything on that before? On that question? Um, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. <laughs> it really is. I think like Adam said, you just move things around. Sometimes you have to, I, I think it's especially hard because, you know, especially restaurants that are sourcing locally and trying to have everything like be the best quality of ingredients, you know, having the best workers there. It's it, vendor, vendor prices increase every year. You know what I mean? So your, your menu prices have to increase with that. And then you have to relay that to your customers and you're still trying to maintain, a, you know, a full staff. But, I mean, our team leadership has, um, like, um, we've foregone wage increases to help with the bottom line at the end of the year, um, which is, I mean, we're, we're paid above a fair living wage at this point. So, it's, you know, we don't, we don't uh, have that offered to the first year workers because they're constantly, well, they're trying to increase their wages, um, which we allow them to do. Sorry, I'm getting a little sidetracked. Um, but yeah, it's it's very difficult. It's really difficult. But you you are constantly looking at your books, trying to move things around, trying to figure out. Okay, well, we could source this from here, but maybe this other farm is a little bit cheaper this month with this. So let's go here for now, and and just constantly looking at everything. It's difficult. Restaurants in general, the margins are slim. Yeah. Another question. Okay. Um, I used to work at a restaurant, and I remember you were always told to judge your table. And I remember there were so many instances where I'd get tables where I knew I'd had to work so much harder to get the same tip. Um, and I felt like sometimes certain clientele were harder to work for. Do you feel that since you have no tips, has that changed the clientele's, like the people who come in and eat their attitude towards, um, like just the entire experience at your restaurants? I want to I want to pass the mic to some of the servers who are here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we're in Mueller, I think, and 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 the kind of restaurant we are. I mean, I think that the branding is a little bit self-selecting as to to. So the majority of our customers are 
playing along at this point with what we do and are anticipating a certain kind of meal from us. Um, but that's exactly why we wanted to do this. I mean, I, that that calculus of of giving different not, not giving different service to different tables, but it should just never be their choice as to to to, to determine the the bulk of your wage. Um, it, it's just not what a tip was ever intended to be. You know, it, this is so funny too because I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about feminism and hooters and he was like well what do you think I mean do you think it's okay for women you know and all this stuff and I said you know I don't I don't really judge the you know do women want to work in this environment whatever you know want to wear these outfits I used to cocktail waitress in Vegas maybe I mean whatever but um but like but I asked him I said do how how different do you think the environment would be if there was no tipping, and if they all made 20 bucks per hour, you know? And I think, like, just imagining that scenario would change the dynamic of a lot of those situations where you're, you're not seeing people as um, objects that will be nice to you if you're going to give them more money or maybe give you their number if you're going to, you know, give them your, your more money. It's like an equal is, is giving you, you know, your beverage or whatever, and it changes the dynamic of the entire situation, even in the imagination. I always use Denny's as my, as my like, low-end example. I kind of always forget that Hooters exists. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. So it's really clear that both national and state um, policies play a crucial role in this conversation. Um, and it's super inspiring to see what a positive impact at the local level and at the city level with the paid sick leave <laughs> that these local, local interventions can make. So if there was a f kind of fairy godmother at the city, city of Austin, um, what kind of city policies do you think could most affect people that are working, you know, that are, the people in tipped wage economies and in the sort of sourcing um, sourcing economies? What kind of city policies would make the biggest difference? And, yeah, and maybe yes. pretend Low that we don't have a state that crushes city policy. Pretend that you can do everything, that the city could do what it wanted. <laughs> so, we had this conversation at the national level and, um, and uh, uh, there was a, a conference and there was an incentives panel and we were asked, uh, you know, a room full of restaurateurs from around the country were asked the same question. What, what like, think big, what would you want? And no one could. Um, and the, and the, the folks from Rock, it was, it was mediated by the folks from Rock and they kept, and they, they would say things like, you guys remember that, you know, uh, 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 Amazon is about to get like a half a billion dollars in subsidies to, to go somewhere, right? Like, what do you want? Like, there are cities that have a half a billion dollars to give to somebody. Um, and you're asking for like $3,000 off on your, on, your, on your liquor permit. Um, you're asking like to, to, you know, for stuff like that. And it's, it's 
really hard um, to think about. Um, incentive, I mean, I, I would like to, the thing that would make the most difference to me is not so much what the financial reward would be, but a real promotional program from the city that would, that with, with hard criteria that would recognize um, the ways in which you were supporting the local economy, the ways in which you were um, um, providing for your workers. Um, I know I, I, I have like, New York has the Golden Apple Awards, and I think there are a couple of different colors. If we had the Armadillo Awards, and there was like a red armadillo for labor policy, and a green armadillo for environmental policy, and a, I don't know, what color do you, what color do you want? Yellow. We the, do have the Armadillo Awards, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've hosted them. <laughs> but it's okay. I think it's a good idea, too. <laughs> we, we could have a bad award this for bats. Bats, bats, right? Yeah. Um, so the promotional idea. part Reward. about it, yes. the promotional part of it is maybe, yeah. Um, that's, that, that is, I mean, that's what we've talked about um, and, and developing what those criteria are. And then obviously there would be incentives attached to them, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, some sort of, but I hate, I hate taking tax dollars away from Austin too, because we don't have that many. Well, anything along the lines of paid sick leave, like another thing like that, any other policy mechanisms? From the city? Yeah. I don't know what I want, really. That's a very difficult question. Yeah, I think it's just, I know I just do it. For me, I haven't really gone into even thinking about trying to change the city or the state or the country. I'm just staying very small. I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to advise other restaurants that opening. So what I've been doing is just consultation. Just like, okay, you do it. Yeah, this is great. This is my experience. We're going to do it one restaurant at a time. That's what I feel. I just don't. I mean, basically, it's great, but I just feel like I was already doing it, so I don't feel I was being forced to do it, and I don't know what else that would make my system easier. I don't even know if there's a thing that would make my system easier. I'm just, I'm just doing it because I feel that it's right, but I know that there's another level apart from just my own or my friend's restaurant that... But I can't really answer. Well, there it's there are <laughs> there are incentives for filmmakers, for example, you know, to make their films in Austin, or there are incentives to bring certain businesses to Austin. If there were incentives, perhaps, to, you know, restaurant owners who were providing fair wages for their servers, maybe something like decreased property taxes, or um, they would take part of the that vendor cost, <laughs> or they would, you know, so like say that they, you know, the city would step in and take fifty percent of your vendor costs. So you could do this. I mean, that, that, that I think that there are possibilities maybe that are out there. I don't know. I'm not yeah, a restaurant. I'm, I'm sure. I, I'll yeah, just I talk just about it. Yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah it, leveling the playing field. I mean, yeah, you know? leveling the playing field. Um, Which would be good. Well, we've gone over a little bit, so I just want to ask um, everyone maybe to just uh, leave us with one idea about why it's important. Um, you've said so many wonderful things, but maybe if there's just one thing that you would tell a restaurant worker or um, staff or, or somebody about you know, why it's really important to think about this holistically as a city, as a state. Adam? Am I starting? 
Um, it's been really, so uh, we opened in 2016, in the summer of 2016, before the election. And, um, and it didn't seem like this was that big a deal. Um, it has become a much bigger deal um, as, I mean, uh, uh, Sorrow speaks much more eloquently about what has happened, especially since the, uh, the Me Too movement has really taken force and, you know, a lot of this is built around eliminating sexual harassment and um, that nationally there are, there are chains and there are local restaurant associations that are starting to see that this is the this is the way things are going, and that they can, they can get on board and be prepared, or they can continue to try and stop the train. Um, and I, it, it's, it's been encouraging to see that and to read, um, to read more and more articles in more and more publications supporting what we're doing and um, looking to the future and to know that um, that we're there already that we're already that we're already well along the way to figuring out how to make this viable um, um, there is no there, that, that there is no there is no dot 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 <laughs> Jody, what do you think? Um, I think that, you know, hearing from other restaurants, Blackstar, we run democratically. We're member-owned, um, myself and the other 25 people that work at Blackstar are running this business. And hearing from, like, individual owners that own restaurants, it's their business, like we empathize with concerns about having to change your models to work around fair living wages. But I just think that it's so important, especially starting this conversation off, talking about the history of tipping and where that comes from and talking about how employers really, you know, it, it, you're, you're subsidizing your wages through your patronage and expecting them to provide for your employees. But as employers, like we're responsible for the health and livelihood of our workers. And that, in turn, if you create a healthy work environment, is going to create a healthier business for you. You know, you're going to have less turnover. You're going to have people that know how to act happy all the time because they are and not fake it. You know, like they're, they're not doing that because they're expecting something in return. They're doing it because they believe in the product that they're selling. They believe in the people that they're working for and... There's a lot of respect that comes along with that. So I just think that it'll, it'll create such a good environment. And say, you said 10% of the workforce is our restaurant workers, I think, in the beginning. Also, that statistic that I might have gotten wrong. But 13 million people. So it's just, it's, it's such a big part of our society, you know? And going to restaurants is something that, who doesn't like going out to eat. <laughs> Don't you want to be ha be proud about where you're eating? Don't you want to feel like you're contributing to society by going out to eat? Like you're contributing to your neighbors and your community. So that's it. Well, for me, I think it is um, important that my 
employees who are actually my family, that they are, like their well-being is very important and I want them to be able to stay with me or with their family. So that's how I started. I just want them to be my family and I want to know them for the rest of my life. So I want us to grow together. So if I'm well, then they have to be well in order for me to be well. I can't do it without them. So that is why it was important. That's how I started, just because I just feel like I need them to be well so I can be well. Maybe a little bit selfish, but that's true. And then everybody's well. So we just a big, happy family. And I hope that people will think the same way and just think of their employees and as their families because these people that work for me or all of them, they are my family and, then, and I love them. So I want them to be taken care of. So that's what, why, we, why we do it, yeah. Well, I just want to say, um, as we prepare to close that, um, that anyone, anyone in the food business who cares as much about the details and is thinking so carefully about the well-being of their, of their employees and their businesses are also probably putting that same attention to the food. And all three of these restaurants, I don't think it's any mistake, have excellent food. And so I recommend that everyone go and try their restaurants and support these business models. Um, and beer, also beer. Everyone, everyone sort of say your name in your restaurant. Just go down the line. Oh, and, and general, ad, general neighborhood slash address. So my name is Jam, and the last name is Sunny Chat. It's a little bit long and hard to remember. So Jam, just like jelly, and um, I'm from Thai Fresh. Um, 909 West Mary, South Austin, between Lamar and First, pretty easy. tucked in Bowden neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jody Mazika. I'm from Black Star Co-op Pub and Brewery. We're on the opposite end of Lamar, uh, at Lamar Airport, uh, right on the Crestview train station. Um, that, there's a train. <laughs> I seen it. And, and it, yeah, it it's on one of the four train stops in Austin. In addition to the really good food, they also make some pretty good beer there, too. So if you're yes. a beer fan. Yeah, awesome beer. You can drink beer and contribute to living wages at the same time. Uh, Adam Orman, I'm one of the co-owners of Locadoro, which is uh, in the Mueller neighborhood right across the street from the Children's Museum uh, on the lake. And to your point about making good food, um, I don't think that we would. I don't think that the, we would be able to do this if if we didn't. Um, and that is why most restaurants don't. Um, it is it is really hard to um, to get people you know to get people in the door if you're not excellent. Um, so I owe that to my partner who is um, at a really fun event tonight. Not he's drinking and eating. Oh. We could go drink and eat now. But, you know, thank you to Jam and Jody and Adam for coming out this evening. Thank you, Tom, for co-hosting tonight for The Secret Ingredient, of course. Thank you, Rebecca. Yes. And thank you all for coming out. And please frequent their restaurants. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.
Hey, this is Robert Ellis, and you're not gonna believe this, but I love Austin because of all the traffic. It gives me more opportunities to listen to KUTX. I ain't I'm just driving. Join me in supporting the Austin music experience by making a gift right now at KUTX.org. Thanks!